This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jeff Begays filling in for Gil Gross. This week, former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty in the death of George Floyd. I heard George Floyd saying, <clears throat> I can't breathe, please get off of me. I can't breathe. It seemed like he knew it was over for him. He was terrified. We're not moving! Okay, bro, okay. you're a bum, bro. Okay. You're a bum, bro. You're Check definitely a bum, right bro. Tell me what it is. Tell me what his pulse is right now. Check the pulse! Bro, he has not moved, not one time. In over a minute! What do you mean by time was running out? That he was going to die? You called him bogus. Hmm. I did. You called him a bum at least 13 times. It, it, those terms grew more and more angry. Would you agree with that? They grew more and more pleading for life. Please don't shoot me, Mr. Officer, please. Don't shoot me, man. Step please. out and face away. Can you not shoot me, man? I'm not shooting. Step out and okay, face away. Okay, okay, okay. Please. Describe for the jurors, you know, generally what his demeanor was like. What was his condition like? So it would appear that he was high. We both... Um, had prescriptions, we got addicted and and tried really hard to uh, break that addiction many times. And what did his condition appear to be to you overall? In lay terms, I thought he was dead. Mr. Floyd died from positional asphyxia, which is a fancy way of saying he died because he had no oxygen left in his body. Do you feel that Mr. Floyd should have been given? You needed emergency attention to try to reverse the cardiac arrest. As a physician, I would agree. Is this your decision not to testify? It is, Your Honor. All right. Verdict, count one. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. Count two, guilty. Count three, guilty. Across America, crowds of people who gathered to hear the verdict expressed relief. Now that the trial is over, there is increased pressure on lawmakers to come up with police reform legislation. The Biden administration says that there won't be a police commission to come up with ideas, but a major city police chief says that's exactly what's needed. Coming up, the head of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. But first, we're going to begin with CBS News correspondent Jamie Yukis, who had the first interview with one of the jurors. You didn't want to be on the jury. I was worried about, you know, whatever the verdict may be, if some people felt strongly on one side, other people felt strongly on the other side. Um, so no matter what, I feel, felt like somebody wasn't going to be happy. Would you have decided any differently than this jury did? I, um, I felt he was guilty. They read the jury instructions to us in the courtroom. 
Um, briefly, I didn't know if it was going to be guilty on all counts, but I would have said guilty. Why did you think he was guilty? What led you to that belief? I just felt like the prosecution made a really got good, strong argument. Dr. Tobin was the one that really did it for me. He explained everything. I understood it down to where he said this is the moment that he lost his life. Um, really got to me. So who made an impact with the defense? Um, good or bad? Made it Just made an impact? I don't think they had a good impact. I think he overpromised in the beginning and didn't live up to what he said he was going to do. Or what were your first impressions of Derek Chauvin? Every time I would look up, he was right in my vision. So we had locked eyes quite a few times and I was pretty uncomfortable. Was there anything about him when you started seeing the videos and the pictures that struck you about him? I felt like he was the leader and, and the other officers were following his lead. I kind of felt like he wasn't taking the warnings seriously, obviously, kind of like, I know what I'm doing. Which witnesses stood out to you? Ms. Frazier that took the video, I really felt that she felt guilty for not doing more and she feels responsible in a way and I feel really bad for her. Um, but I commend her on taking the, the video because without her, I don't think this would have been possible. So. Had you ever seen the nine and a half minutes of video before? No, um, I seen I seen the video two or three times, but I didn't see it in its entirety because I only saw it on the news. So what was it like to have to watch it over and over and over again in court? It was it was emotional. Um, I think my eyes teared up a couple of times. So especially seeing it from different angles and, and things. Do you feel like that's going to impact you for a while? Um, I do. So in what way? Well, I just don't understand how it got from a counterfeit $20 bill to a death. It's it. It kind of shocks me. Jamie is here now. She's been covering the trial from the beginning. All right. So, Jamie, first, I wanted to talk about the juror that you spoke with. Tell me, how were you able to secure that interview? Well, it's interesting. I grew up here, as you well know, in Minnesota, and I worked at the local CBS station, WCCO-TV in Minneapolis. Uh, and I was the anchor of the morning show for about five years. Um, and we were, we were a pretty popular morning show here. So I made sure, uh, when I found out that I was going to be able to get inside the courtroom and be one of the pool reporters, one of just two pool reporters each day allowed in, um, I actually thought through that and said to myself, you know, if any of the jurors maybe remember me, uh, I'm going to wear a really bright color because remember we had to wear masks inside the courtroom the entire time. So I wore a really hot pink kind of mock turtleneck and sparkly shoes, hoping someone recognized me, maybe re recognized me by my hair or just that, you know, I was a reporter and they remembered a little bit of what I looked like and they'd have to look at me in that bright shirt. So I uh, sat in there. I did remember making eye contact with her. It just so happened that on Wednesday, this alternate juror had seen the verdict, had been at home, had been talking through, wanting to see, she really wanted to talk to someone in the media. And she ended up calling um, the local CBS here and then getting in contact with CBS, one of our booking team members. And then the booking team was able to secure her. What is it about her account that really stood out to you? 
A couple different things stood out to me. I think, first of all, just how seriously the jury took this. You know, um, it's kind of a little bit of a funny story. I was asking her if there were just any, you know, moments that that people might find interesting. And she said, well, I want you to know, you know, we took this so seriously as a jury that we were told we could not discuss the case. And so we talked a lot about the weather. Uh, we talked about you reporters who were inside the courtroom and who was paying attention and, uh, you know, who was talking to one another. And we would note like, oh, did you see that person looked over at us when when you said, you know, turned around and said something to me? Uh, so she said, you know, I just I, I'm telling you that because not only is it a little funny, but it's also a testament to how seriously we took things. And so what about you? Did the trial end the way you expected it to end? Um, I, I will be fully honest with you. I had thought that potentially the jury would find him guilty on a charge. I did not think he would be found guilty on all three charges. That was surprising to me. And, you know, I have a lot of friends who are people of color who would say to me, Jamie, I don't think he's going to be found guilty at all. Um, so that was always in the back of my mind that, uh, that very well could happen. It just seemed to me that the jurors were paying such close attention, specifically that first week to the witnesses and hearing some of them get choked up and teared up. Uh, I think the prosecution did a very, uh, it was very impactful to the jury that very first week when you had so many witnesses and then police officer after police officer testify and break down that blue wall of silence, I think did have a large impact. Uh, we all felt that way watching that the prosecution was having big moments in the courtroom. What about Chauvin? What was his reaction when the verdict was read? Could you see his face? Did you see his eyes if he had his mask on? So everyone reported, the the pool reporters who were inside and th those of us watching uh, from the outside, it was a little, uh, I don't, what's the word I want to use? It, it was surprising to many of us, especially when you heard that the jury found him guilty on all three charges. He really just nodded his head, stood up, put his hands behind his back, took the handcuffs and walked out like it was nothing. Uh, there was no real reaction. He did have his mask on. Um, but, you know, his facial expressions the entire time, I think a lot of us felt were very unemotional. Um, and that was just another moment where he didn't show much emotion at all. Jamie Ukis, CBS News correspondent. Thank you. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever. Almost a year after the death of George Floyd, there is a debate about where policing in this country goes next. I think everyone knows that there have to be changes, especially given what we've seen in recent months. The question is, what kind of changes? The International Association of Chiefs of Police is one of the most influential organizations when it comes to advocating for law enforcement, not only in this country, but across the world. After Ferguson had played a major role in helping to shape policing reform policy with the White House, and there cannot be reform this time around without IACP support and without the IACP having a seat at the table with lawmakers. Cynthia Renault is the president of the IACP. Cynthia, thanks for being with us. So where do you think law enforcement goes from here? We move forward and we move forward boldly. And now in this time and space where we need to take action 
that continues to improve the great work that our profession does. Um, it is true that there are thousands of police officers who um, do feel that they've been painted with a similar brush. And they know that, that that is not how they act. It's not how they work with their communities. It's not how they serve. And they're anxious for that message to be heard. And I think the best place to be right now is forward communication around meaningful growth and action that Congress can take to further move our profession forward and continue to improve it. And specifically, I'm talking about adopting the national consensus policy on use of force that the IACP put together a few years ago, mandating participation in the national use of force database, developing national standards for discipline and termination of officers, mandating participation in the national police officer decertification database, enhancing police leadership and culture, implementing improvement in recruitment, hiring and promotion practices, and enhancing the ability of police agencies to implement effective discipline. And I read off that list um, in order to highlight the fact that there are concrete things that we can do together now jointly with all stakeholders to move forward in a productive fashion. The Biden administration has moved away from having a commission. However, the head of the major city chiefs, Art Acevedo, who's also the chief of police in Miami now, he thinks that there should be a commission. And he's asking the president in an interview that I did with him for CBS News, he's asking the president to reconsider. So where does IACP stand on a commission? Should there be a commission? So, you know, there's been a substantial amount of work done um, in the past seven years. There's been a, a, the 21st Century Task Force on Policing that looks specifically at the law enforcement profession. And then recently under the previous administration, there was a commission that looked at the, at the administration of justice in totality. And so what we need to do is not get rid of all the work that's been done, but take what's been done in those reports and combine all of our stakeholders, get those people who felt they didn't have a voice to have a voice and move forward from there. So while a commission can and will do great many things, and the IACP had been calling for one since the Johnson administration, there are still things we don't want to lose the conversation threads right now on those topics that I just outlined by focusing on on whether or not you know there should be a commission or there shouldn't be a commission. Let's take this moment to move on those topics that I just mentioned right now, and we'll continue to talk about the commission moving forward. But there has been a substantial amount of work done, and, and there have been com commissions convened. So what is the state of policing today? Are police departments across the country still having a hard time recruiting? You know, so what is happening in police departments across America? We see the headlines, but what's the real story? I think that's been pretty well reflected in some articles recently that many police departments are indeed saying that they're having problems recruiting. The status going beyond the headlines, um, as you so aptly put it, is that in every city and in every community, there are dedicated men and women who go out every day and serve and put themselves in harm's way in order to protect other people. And the state of the profession as a whole is that that work is continuing. Um, but where we need to be now is in a place of healing, in a place of communication, in a place of bringing people together 
and groups and stakeholders together into the same space, into the same room to talk about how we move forward from here and how we heal. Because law enforcement is only one piece of the overall system. We're the most visible piece, but we're only one part of it. And the system functions in totality. It includes law enforcement. It includes the courts. It includes um, probation, parole, um, rehabilitation. It includes everything that, that keeps our society lawful. Um, there are many cities and states looking at $0 bail, and that's part of the criminal justice system. And that conversation impacts and affects how police agencies function and how safety looks in a city. And so that part of the criminal justice system has to be included in this overall conversation. You mentioned administration of justice. Give me a an example of what you mean by that? Uh, I just bring that up as an example of um, the totality of the criminal justice system and how we need to talk um, holistically in order to move forward on a path. The IACP is really strong on the points that I brought up at the beginning of the call. Um, the national consensus policy on use of force um, and national use of force database and uh, the, the other topics that, that I, I won't reiterate here, but those are the areas that, that we need to be looking to Congress to make movements on, and that's where the conversation needs to start. So I think what we'd like to see is that same sort of construction that was done in 2016, but the 21st Century Task Force on Policing looked at only the policing profession, and we need to be broader than that. <clears throat> we need to look at the administration of justice in totality, and how government functions along with nonprofits, civil liberties, and all of our representatives here, everybody that makes our society function. And I go back to saying that the commission report under the previous administration has great work in it that spent months and was the, the culmination of just months of time, hours and hours of work. And that and the 21st Century Task Force on Policing, both reports need to be brought in and looked at, and then we move and build on that work from there. But we don't need to start from scratch, but we do need to have a comprehensive look at the administration of justice, the criminal justice system in totality with all of the stakeholders involved so that there's buy-in and input from everyone. In terms of law enforcement, what, what do you think is the most concerning trend in your view across the country? Uh, I, I, I think, honestly, the most concerning trend right now is the rise in crime and the rise in violent crime nationwide um, and, and how, how law enforcement is going to, to work to ensure the safety of, of those they serve. I think that is the most alarming trend that not only should law enforcement be looking at, everybody should be concerned about that. Has, has the ICP had productive discussions with the Biden administration uh, about next steps in reform? It seems to me that the attorney general, it's something that he is interested in. What do you think it is next for law enforcement uh, with, the Biden, with the Biden administration in Washington? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, the IACP has been very active communicating with the Biden administration, and it's, it's wonderful to have those lines of communication open and engaged. 
uh, we've been having a lot of uh, conversation about what the next steps are and really focusing on what's going to be effective um, and what meaningful legislation can be passed at the federal level to give police the policies, the tools, the techniques to do their job as safely and effectively as possible. And some of those specifics, again, go around uh, an emphasis on, on funding and training for de-escalation techniques and tactics, um, mandatory participation in the use of force reporting database for agencies nationwide in order to foster and create that, that level of transparency that all of our communities want. I think in closing, I hope that we all sense that now is the time for coming together collectively, for conversation, for communication, for compromise, for understanding, and for striking that path forward. And we can do that in those areas that I talked about. There is a path forward, and we are looking to Congress to move on that path. Now is the time for compromise and to come together, and we're looking to our electeds to come together and talk about the pieces that we do agree upon, that everybody agrees upon, and move that forward and start the conversation and take action now. Stay with CBS News for the latest information on the Chauvin trial and sentencing and other justice stories as lawmakers, law enforcement, and community look to solve these difficult issues. When we come back, countries make commitments in the battle to tackle climate change. Stay with us. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now... New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome back to America Changed Forever. I'm Jeff Begay's filling in for Gil Gross. This is a story most people in this country haven't heard. My interview with the father of a man shot by police. Also, the link between all of these incidents, whether it's the Floyd case, Eric Garner, or Dante Wright. Your son was painted out to be a criminal. Right. If a police officer says it, then it must be true. That your son was a threat. Right. That, that he, you know, he was a threat. This he's black saying, young man was a threat. Right. D. Thomas, somber and soft-spoken, carries a kind of grief that's hard to comprehend. On a summer night in 2016, his 22-year-old son, Kane Rogers, was driving near his Atlanta neighborhood and would soon encounter Officer James Burns behind the wheel of his police cruiser. Burns was responding to a call that someone was jumping fences. Burns claimed that Kane Rogers came barreling toward him. But the dash cam video, which wasn't released for four years, 
tells a different story. What did that tape show? Did it show that Kane was going right for that police officer, that the police officer uh, was justified in feeling that his life was under threat? Is that what it showed? No, I didn't see that at all. I didn't see that. What did you see? I just saw my son had already passed his officer. So it wasn't as if the officer, from what it looks like in the video, doesn't look like he shot this way, which means something's coming at him. Right. It looks like he shot that way. He did. I'm not an expert, but I think it's almost impossible to shoot <laughs> and shoot someone in the side of the head from the front of the vehicle. This vehicle had always already passed James Burns. James Burns took it upon himself to be judge, jury, and executioner. Burns insists that he is innocent and is awaiting trial, charged with felony murder. The Atlanta Police Department declared his actions unnecessary and unreasonable. That brings little comfort to Dee Thomas, who joins a long and tragic list. Those who've seen the final moments of a loved one captured by a dash cam, body cam, or bystander. To name a few, Demir Rice, now, Sandra Bland, get out of the car for failure to signal. Orlando Castile, and the officer just shot him in his arm. And Dante Wright earlier this month. If we didn't ask police to do every darn thing, there wouldn't be guns showing up to every darn place. Philip Atiba Goff is a Yale University psychologist who studies policing and racial bias. What are these incidents? that we're seeing unfold on dash cam. What do they show? So it's tempting to say that what they show is a disregard for black life among American law enforcement. And I think that that's not fair. You don't think it's fair? No, because I think that means that it's just law enforcement. What do you think the entire picture, the entire problem is? What we're seeing on those cameras is not just individual bad training, individual um, <clears throat> bad decision, individual malice in some cases. It's what we as a country have decided to tolerate. Goff sees another link common among police killings. Many of them involve minor infractions like the death in 2014 of Eric Garner, suspected of selling cigarettes on a New York street. Why do we need an armed response when the issue is a speeding ticket, expired tags, loose cigarettes, a fake 20? There's no reason for you to introduce a badge and a gun to that because that doesn't have a chance of de-escalating the situation. So it's not the case that black and brown communities are calling out for abolition of the police per se. But there's got to be a common sense response that when you're sending someone whose job it is to possibly take away liberty or God forbid life, and the, the issue was you had cigarettes and you were selling them individually instead of in packs, that's an overreaction. It was all supposed to change after Ferguson in 2014. Protests lasted for months after 18-year-old Michael Brown was shot and killed by Officer Darren Wilson. Wilson was cleared of wrongdoing, but the outrage fueled the Black Lives Matter movement and calls for real police reform. Body cams became common practice, but instead of solving problems, they exposed them. Roll to your stomach now! Do you remember Ferguson? Because I think you do. And I, I know you enough to know you also remember LA. And you may not be old enough to remember Watts, and Newark, and Chicago, and Tulsa. 
but we've been doing this for generations. And in between each time, it's like the whole country forgets. Right now, it is the videos that are moving millions of people to action. And then there is D. Thomas. Five years after losing his son, he is left with more questions than answers. When are they going to change the rules by which an officer can operate? When are they going to change the laws that give officers, basically give them murder permits? This is America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Change Forever. I'm Jeff Begays, filling in for Gil Gross. This week, during President Joe Biden's climate summit, there were commitments made to curb domestic greenhouse gas emissions. The U.S. is trying to take the lead again on this issue after the Trump administration backed away from commitments on climate. In a CBS News poll, there is, and this is probably not a surprise, a partisan divide on climate change. When asked if climate change should be addressed right now, 80% of Democrats said yes, but only 29% of Republicans. Michael Mann is an American climatologist and geophysicist and the director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Thank you, Jeff. It's good to be with you. When it comes to climate change, there is a segment of the U.S. population, perhaps they don't understand what climate change really means. So can you can you give us the basics? Sure. So, I mean, when it comes to the science, uh, it's it's actually pretty straightforward, uh, you know, with regard to the basics. Uh, Carbon dioxide is what we call a greenhouse gas. Uh, So it absorbs some of the outgoing heat that would otherwise escape out into space. Uh, and it sends some of it back down towards the surface, warming up the surface of the planet. There's a natural greenhouse effect uh, that keeps the temperature um, at the moderate temperature that it is, that allows for life. In the absence of the greenhouse effect, uh, the Earth would be a frozen planet. Uh, It would likely be a lifeless planet. So that's the first thing to understand. There is a natural greenhouse effect, and it makes the planet livable. Um, You can't deny that the greenhouse effect um, is real because then you're, you're actually denying that we exist on this planet. It's why the planet is habitable. The problem is we are increasing the temperature beyond that sort of optimal range for us and other life by putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere through the burning of fossil fuels like oil, gas, coal. Uh, that has led to a more than 50% increase in the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere over the last century. And if we continue on the course that we're on, we will reach double pre-industrial levels uh, by later this century that would warm the planet several degrees enough to melt a a large part of the ice sheets, um, cause massive sea level rise. But we're already seeing the impacts of climate change. It's already warmed. The planet's warmed uh, almost two degrees Fahrenheit now, enough so that we're actually seeing the impacts of that planetary fever. And it doesn't sound like a large increase, right? Two degrees Fahrenheit. But keep in mind that if you're running two degrees above normal, you've got a, a fever. It's, you're, you're in sort of the dangerous uh, range of, of, of temperature for, for uh, your body. Uh, we're doing the same thing to the planet here. We're increasing the temperature out of that sort of comfortable range into dangerous territory. And we're seeing the impacts play out now in the form of unprecedented heat waves and wildfires and floods and superstorms that, you know, 
are here now. We're seeing the damaging effects of climate change. It's no longer theoretical. It's no longer just about polar bears off in the Arctic. It's about us, where we live today, and, and the consequential impacts that it's having on our lives now. Well, that makes sense. But I know there is, again, a segment of the population who, you know, they take issue with what you're saying and not to get too deep into politics. But I I just don't think in this day and age we can tackle this subject without addressing some of the, the criticism head on. So as as someone who studies uh, climate change, what are your thoughts on how this topic has become so politicized? Yeah, well, it's unfortunate that it's become uh, politicized because it impacts all of us. It doesn't matter whether we're Democrats or Republicans. We all care about our, our children, our grandchildren. We all want to leave behind a better world for them. And, and frankly, I, I think that uh, there, you know, there are a, a, a large number of us, uh, you know, of, of citizens, of U.S. citizens who are really victims of a misinformation campaign. Um, people of goodwill, good intentions, who you know, question the science because they've been told to question it. There is an overwhelming scientific consensus among the world's scientists. Uh, the US National Academy of Sciences, of which I am a member, which was founded, I would remind people, by a Republican president, Abraham Lincoln, um, to advise uh, our government about matters of policy-relevant science. Uh, they've spoken out very clearly. The climate, that climate change is real, um, it's human caused, and it's already presenting great risk. And look, our military um, is very concerned now about the national security implications of climate change. Um, the Pentagon has characterized climate change as a threat multiplier and one of the great threats um, that we face. A uh, friend of mine, uh, I would just comment, um, Bob Inglis, former congressman from South Carolina, conservative Republican. Um, uh, he and I probably don't agree on everything, but he recognizes the importance of acting on, on climate uh, from a conservative standpoint, from conserving our environment, conserving our planet. And he goes around the country advocating for conservative climate solutions. Uh, for example, revenue neutral ways of putting a price on carbon that don't increase taxation on the American people. That's the sort of um, discussion I think we should be having. There is this push uh, among America's largest corporations asking the administration, the Biden administration, to do more to double the targets for reducing the emissions that cause climate change from global warming. Companies like Walmart, McDonald's, and Levi Strauss are, are those who have signed on to this letter. How significant is it to have these businesses leading this push for more aggressive climate control policies? Yeah, I think it's really significant for, for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, it's sort of... Um, it erodes this fallacy that climate action is a progressive cause, that it's environmentalists uh, trying to save polar bears. Um, uh, these are some of our, you know, most, uh, you know, our largest corporations. Um, uh, obviously, uh, these are entities that buy very much into sort of basic uh, principles of capitalism and market economics. And so even they are saying that, look, this is going to hurt our bottom line. Uh, climate change is this huge tax. Um, it, it is, you know, eroding uh, more than a percent of our economy already, um, and that could get much higher. In fact, there is no economy on a dead planet. When you say a huge tax, that gets my attention. 
because ultimately this is a tax that is passed on to taxpayers. It is. Um, and, and unfortunately, also future generations, right? The worst consequences will be borne by our children and grandchildren. And do we really want to do that? Do we want them to inherit the legacy of our unwillingness to act today? Um, that doesn't need to be our legacy, uh, but we have to act now. And so, indeed, uh, this is a tax on our economy. Uh, climate change is impacting every sector of our economy uh, negatively now. Uh, just think about these massive uh, extreme weather events that we've seen uh, in recent summers here in the United States, which we know have been exacerbated by climate change. The science is in on that. Uh, the, the wildfires, the heat waves, the floods. Uh, the superstorms. Um, this is the face of climate change, and it's costing us hundreds of billions of dollars now a year here in the United States in the form of these unprecedented weather disasters. So here's the most important point when it comes to the economics. The cost of inaction right now is far greater than the cost of taking action. And in fact, an argument can be made that taking action grows the economy. There are far more jobs that are available um, in uh, installation, renewable energy, than there is, for example, in the now relatively automated fossil fuel industry. There just aren't that many jobs anymore in the fossil fuel industry because so much of it has been automated. But there are huge numbers of potential jobs in building new infrastructure, smart grid technology, battery technology, installing uh, renewables, wind and solar. Uh, that is the, uh, you know, the, the, the wave of the future. Coming up, we'll have more with Michael Mann. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com welcome back to america change forever i'm jeff Gates. we're talking with michael mann who is an american climatologist and geophysicist and the director of the earth system science center at penn state it, it sounds like climatologists are the type is the type of expertise that these big Fortune 500 companies, if you will, they're having to hire people like you to, to consult on how these uh, climate changes are going to affect their business, not only in the short term, but in the long term as well. Yeah, that's true. I think climate scientists play a role um, in you know informing stakeholders, be it 
governmental stakeholders or corporate stakeholders about issues of uh, resilience and adaptation um, and also the importance of mitigation of what we can do to actually reduce carbon emissions. And obviously, there are other important players in this larger space, uh, people with expertise um, in energy systems, um, engineering. Uh, it's a sort of all, all hands on deck um, problem. And we need people uh, with a broad range of expertise at the table as we confront with this, uh, we confront this massive challenge. According to NASA, CO2 emissions broke a record in 1950 that had stood for 800,000 years. So what's happened to CO2 emissions since then and what impact has it had on the planet? Yes, yeah, so CO2 emissions have continued to increase over the last 50 years, and they will continue to do, to do so as long as we burn fossil fuels and engage in other um, activities that put carbon pollution into the atmosphere. CO2 levels will continue to rise. Right now, they're higher. We're fairly confident from the, the paleoclimate evidence. Uh, they are higher than they've been in millions of years uh, and potentially tens of millions of years uh, if we continue down this road. I have two teenage daughters and their generation seems to be really in tune to what's going on uh, with climate change. Is that a positive sign for the future? It is. I mean, the young folks really get it. And, and part of why I am so optimistic uh, is because of young folks out there uh, demonstrating demanding action, the youth climate movement. Of course, we've all heard of Greta Thunberg, but there are literally you know, thousands and thousands of uh, youth climate advocates who have really recentered this conversation because for too long, it was really about the science and the economics and the politics and the policy dimensions. But to me, more than anything else, um, it's about our ethical obligation um, you know, to not destroy this planet for future generations. Michael Mann, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, very much enjoyed this conversation. And that is this week's America Changed Forever. Next week, we'll be looking at Hollywood. It is Oscars week. We're going to look at how Hollywood has had to reinvent itself during the pandemic and what's next for the movie industry. Also, don't forget that you can download past episodes of ACF anywhere podcasts are available. As always, thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. For Gil Gross, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.